0: Today, we have Hunter Thompson on the show. Do you want to learn how to raise capital for real estate? Hunter Thompson has been in the business of raising capital for over eight years and raises millions of dollars from investors. He's learned what works and what doesn't. He's learned how to build trust with investors. And the best of all, is that he openly shares his knowledge in his new book, Raising Capital for Real Estate. Hunter will teach you everything about raising money for your next project. You will learn how to attract investors to you rather than searching for investors. Listen as Hunter shares his story and his advice to help you achieve your capital raising goals. Before we jump into the intro, don't take a chance on missing out on a future episode to learn from proven, seasoned investors. Go to Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe, and please select the five-star review. Thank you. We are currently at 292 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we are shooting to get to the 300 mark. We are so close. Thank you for stepping up. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Hunter Thompson before we start the show. Hunter lives in Southern California. He runs a private equity firm called Asim Capital that raises millions of dollars from investors. The company's focus is on capital raising for recession-resistant cash-flowing assets, such as multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, and others. He's carved out a very nice niche and he shares his knowledge and wisdom, both in his book and in this episode. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest here with us today. We've got Hunter Thompson. Hunter, I appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks again for the opportunity. Absolutely. So just a little bit about how I know Hunter before we get into everything. So this is actually the first time that we've talked, but I watched a YouTube video where Hunter was on uh, Bigger Pockets on a YouTube live, and um, really liked what he had to say, and, and thought that he could add a lot of value to the listeners. So asked him to come on board, and and he was graciously enough to agree to do so. So first question I typically ask is, how many properties and how many units do you currently own?
1: Well, I know we want to talk about raising capital today, but uh, this is kind of an interesting question when when you ask me, because the way that we're positioned as a company, we raise capital for, in a large degree, other people's deals. So we have been minority or sometimes majority equity participants in some very well-known, very large sponsors. So as an example, we may have an equity partner that's going to have a $100 million fund and purchase, let's say, $400 million worth of real estate we may participate to the tune of $20 million. So we act as a capital placement arm of some institutional quality players. So uh, cumulatively, I'd say that we have an interest in at least a half a billion, if not a billion dollars worth of real estate, but it's not that we own the majority of that real estate. We, we're happy to be minority owners or minority equity per- partners just to be as diversified as possible. And that's across multiple sectors. So um, again, don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. I'm happy to do it if you think your audience will be interested. But- Absolutely. Okay.
0: Actually that's very interesting that this you are the first person that I've had on the show that exclusively focuses on on being and I, and we can talk more about how you typically structure that if you if you're a GP partner in that deal or um and, and I read your book and whether you're a fund of funds um, yep. so that that's extremely interesting and I think that you're going to add a lot of value how did you get in the business and, and how did you pick that niche part of the business?
1: So I started in the business as an LP investor. You know, I was very fortunate in terms of the timing of the market. Graduated college around 2010 in the peak of the Great Recession and moved to California where it was very pronounced, right? The volatility of the California market is something that people that were around at that time. A lot of people lost their shirts, even if you kind of knew what you were doing. And so when I started to go to networking events and try to form an investment thesis, I was quickly surrounded by some very influential people that were able to weather that storm. So my first investments were not in you know, single families and fix and flips, which is very typical. But the only people that really made it out of that to a large degree, especially those in California, were buying you 100-unit know, properties, Fannie, Freddie kind of financed assets, mobile home parks, cell storage multifamily, et cetera. And so I built an investment thesis around that recession resistant, you know, five to 15, sometimes to $50 million properties and start investing passively recognized, Hey, look, if I can create an opportunity where investors could defer to my expertise in terms of the contacts I've developed, the due diligence process I have, et cetera, perhaps I could create an opportunity where they can invest through an entity that I create and I could invest in these other people's deals and that later came to be known as or at least to me as the fund of funds model which you kind of alluded to i just found it very compelling if i can be as diversified as possible and also not be a jack of all trades that's a very hard thing to do you know because in this business in order to be good at anything you got to be very specialized you got to be the guy at something right and if you're not you're just kind of middle of the road and so i wanted to be diversified but that's in stark contrast with that kind of over-allocation from a specialization standpoint. Now I was able to build a business that was able to kind of accomplish both by deferring to other people's expertise in their various niches.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You've been around for, for a long time in this business, and I've, I've seen a lot of syndicators. And a lot of the partnerships that are formed, to your point, are kind of formed in that manner. Maybe one of the individuals... Two people come together. Maybe one of the individuals is very good at building relationships with brokers, getting deals, getting deal flow, um, being an asset manager. And then the other one is more the capital raiser, the one that is investor relations. And so basically what you did was, hey, instead of forming partnership and locking myself in with one partner, I'm going to build a capital raising company. And then I I can have the flexibility to invest in multiple different deals with multiple different sponsors. um, And that gives you the ultimate flexibility. That's fantastic.
1: Exactly correct. And this was something that now it makes sense. I mean, to have a conversation like this now, I'm sure your audience is familiar with most of the terms I just used. Going back to 2011, you know, crowdfunding wasn't even legal. On the internet at that time, so it was a really kind of walking on the moon scenario. But some of the moves I made early on, not because of my own intuition, but just because of the mentors that I got, um, put me in a good position to do exactly what you just outlined.
0: That, that's fantastic. You know, you say that it, you know times are different, but there, I've been around a lot of syndicators, and there's not too many that focus in just on, on that niche. Um, there's, that's there's, true. You know, there's a lot of people that basically look at all right, if I'm going to scale this thing, I'm going to have to start hiring employees and build a company and have asset managers. And, you know, not everybody wants that lifestyle. And so from reading your book, it sounds like you wanted to, you know, not only build a good business and help other people grow wealth, but you wanted to bear in mind what kind of lifestyle you wanted to have.
1: <laughs> That's so true. You know, um, and I appreciate, like I mentioned, the email that you sent. You know, it's always great to see people that read the book and take it very seriously. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have written books and there's always different goals. People have different goals for why they want to write something like that. The book is, you know, to a large degree my life's work, at least up until this point, meaning that it's everything I know about capital raising. And so that's not the way that most people write books, but the books that really impacted my life, I could tell that the authors just gave away the playbook and said, look, if you do this, you're going to have success. Now, the things written in the book, they're not easy to do, but if you do them, you will have success. It may take a little bit of time, but and a lot of hard work and some trials and tribulations, which I also talk about in the book, but it is the playbook for raising capital in today's environment. Um, but to your point, you know, if I was a video game character, and, I, and we all have like different strengths and weaknesses looking at the video game character, my like demand for personal freedom index is just smashed all the way forward. sometime <laughs> where I'll give up income in exchange for personal freedom. You know, I also want to mention the book that I wasn't really willing to take on VC funding. You know, that's another option in the crowdfunding world where it's like, okay, here's the playbook. You create a really great website and you get a fee based on transactions and you scale to the moon. Well, you know, it's possible to accomplish remarkable things in this industry without attaching yourself to that type of investment and to have a board of advisors and all those things, which I was really trying to avoid. So yeah, I completely agree with you.
0: That, that's huge. So as you mentioned, um, I did purchase your book. Um, it's called Raising Capital for Real Estate. Um, and later on in the show, I'm, I'm hoping that you will give the listeners uh, the opportunity to, to find a place to, to get that book. Um, it was very good. If you don't mind, I'd like to just pick out a few things that I read in the book and, and get your take on it. Would that work for Happy you? i do it. Of course. Um, so you talk about, in one part, a $2,000 idea. So what is a $2,000 idea? What does that mean to you? Well, the first part of that is
1: that most people especially when you're just getting started in this industry, don't recognize how valuable and how potentially lucrative this industry can be. And so intuitively, you start to play small ball. And this is definitely true of me, where I would think, okay, I'm going to go to a networking event and it's only a $30 entry fee. And the real goal there is to kind of meet some contacts, for example. But especially in Los Angeles, driving around, you know, going to these networking events, is a very burdensome thing to do. And I felt like- <laughs> There's a l- was little just- bit more congestion there. <laughs> exactly. And so I felt like my time would be better off spent sitting in silence than going to most networking events. And I'm not saying that derogatorily uh, to myself or anybody else, but like the quantum, this business and entrepreneurship in general, it's all about making quantum leaps in your business. It's not about, you don't want to plug along and give yourself a three or 5% raise. You can go do that in corporate America. But if your goal is to really grow and to create something impactful, not only for yourself, but for others as well, all the way from your tenants all the way to maybe the next generation or even the generation after that, you have to have quantum leaps. And so the concept of the $2,000 idea is basically going in with a minimum requirement. If I'm going to take an evening to go to a networking event, I've got to get at least one $2,000 piece of contact or content, or relationships, or thoughts, or concepts, et cetera. And that way, can have a $2,000 night. And, you know, that your number may be different based on where you are in your career. But especially back then, you know, I needed to go in with the mentality that where is my $2,000 night? And if I can have a $2,000 night, then it'll definitely be worth my time. So I'll give you an example. You know, what person can I potentially partner with? Maybe if it's not directly a partnership with them, maybe they could introduce me to someone what is a, a software that I could use to conduct due diligence? Who is an attorney that I need to know that could potentially create my next legal document? What are some strategies that are more advanced, like constantly leveling up your game? Because if you go in there saying, thinking, I paid $30, I just got to get my money's worth, man, your time is so much more valuable than that $30. You should be outsourcing $30 tasks in yeah. exchange for $1,000 tasks.
0: Yeah, so I, I really liked that idea, and I, and I thought about it in terms of, okay, well, how do I do that, and, and you know, how does that concept apply to, to my, my life and, you know, different events. And sometimes, you know, I tell people, sometimes I'll, I'll pay to go to a, you know, a speaking conference, and there might be eight speakers. And the first four speakers, I'm like, waste of time, waste of time, waste of time, waste of time. Waste of time. And then all of a sudden the fifth speaker says something and I'm like, holy cow, what a great idea. If I take that and apply that to my business, that's a game changer. And so like, you have to sift through a bunch of, you know, maybe non-value items, but when you, when you get that nugget, you know, it's just, that's just huge. I love it. I was just literally
1: like closing my eye. What you're saying is so powerful because of the fact that we're living in an age where the information is not the X factor. Everyone has access to it. We have great shows such as yourself that maybe even didn't exist a few years ago, but now everyone knows the playbook, the template, the terminology. And those tools, which are readily available, therefore are no longer the X factor. It's what can you extract from those conversations and how can you apply it to your own business? That is a really, really powerful, uh, powerful concept. And here's why. Because in that example, you mentioned where you're at a seminar, for example, and there's eight speakers, you're in the room with hundreds of people and they're all getting the same information. But what percentage of those people are going to go and revolutionize their business because of that seminar? Probably 1%. Meaning that if you're in a room with 500 people, five of them are doing what you're doing, just going, where's the value? Where's the value? Where's the value? And it becomes when you can gamify that process, it makes you always listening all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, because if you're huge. not gamifying it, you can check out easily and go, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's boring or, or whatever. He doesn't apply to my business, et cetera, et cetera. And one way I found to kind of maximize that is to even gamify those moments where if you're thinking, and this is like the ultimate X factor, if you find yourself thinking, I don't invest in fix and flips, which is true. I don't. So if I'm going to a networking event and I start to meet someone and they explain, well, I do hard money loans and I do fix and flips, et cetera, and I loan to wholesalers or something like that. It's very easy for me to go, what do we all say? Well, I got to go to the bathroom. I'll see you around. <laughs> you know, you know, you walk around for a circle and then you don't really do anything. Well, what I like to do is listen and try to extract who could I contact this person with? Who can I connect this person with? that'll ensure that they have a $2,000 night. And so what ends up happening, go, yeah, I'm a wholesaler and I work in Orange County. If I hear someone that's into hard money loans in Southern California, boom, there's the contact that makes it happen. And why this is the X factor is not just because it's fun to do nice things, which it is. And it's not just because it makes you listen to what other people are saying, which makes them much more engaged. It's when you make that connection, there's a reciprocity that exists on both ends. So now they're trying to make you have a $2,000 night but it's even both of them. And it's even stronger because you already gave them the gift of that connection. And so what happens after that is that the next time you walk in that networking event, you are famous. And the new people that don't quite know you yet, they recognize that you're the famous guy that's so good at knowing everybody. And then the momentum just starts to grow. And that's exactly how I built my career going to networking events.
0: That That's very cool. And, and you said something there that I didn't even catch from the book. Um, but it's not only that you get reciprocity from the first guy, but you took him and introduced him to somebody else. And now you have two people that want to give back to you. That's, that's massive. Hey, you mentioned um, meeting somebody, you know, and that, and I, I remember reading in the book that you, you know, you flew into town to meet, you know, somebody said, you Hey, you got to meet this guy. And you flew into town and, and went, met him and that kind of changed your life. Um, can you share that story? Because I think that, um, some people don't, they don't maybe see the value in, in meeting somebody that can change their life. Um, or, you know, or (laughs) it's funny
1: to say that out loud, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Or they, (laughs) you know, don't see the value in themselves. So, you know, they're not where they think they need to be. Um, so whatever the case may be, they're basically limiting beliefs. Um, tell your story because I think it's, it's key. Everybody is just one person away from really opening the door. Oh my
1: gosh. You know, it's been a while since I've gotten to talk about the book in detail like this. and I, I appreciate the opportunity to do so because there are, I'm really, really proud of it. And that's, I have a high standard for my kind of output, but what you're talking about, man, it's, it's so powerful, and there's an interesting tie-in to a recent story that just happened. But basically, you know, I, went, I was going to networking events, and again, during COVID, this has kind of slowed down, but it's about to open up in a big way. Uh, my wife is in the event planning business, and these things are coming back with a vengeance in the next, in the next coming months. But I started um, going to events, and I met someone at an event that was investing in and purchasing and operating ATM machines. And I very quickly was very interested in it. There's a lot of nuances of the business, which we don't have to get into now. But, um, you know, it's a asset class, which is depreciating. There's a technology risk. The cash flow is very high. Usually it's unleveraged. It's very predictable cash flow. Very uh, just nuances there that I really liked. And it's not you don't sell the asset at the end. So you're not really dependent on market dynamics. It's all about cash flow. Very interesting play. And I was like, OK, forget real estate for a moment tell me about your network, your business. Like, how'd you get into this? How'd you finance these? Who was involved in raising capital for these? And he said, if you're interested in these more niche kind of recession-resistant plays, you should meet this individual named Jeremy Roll. And um, Jeremy's a guy who, if you haven't had him on your show yet, you should certainly. Um, I ended up going to a meetup with Jeremy and very quickly I recognized that him and I saw the world and particularly the investment space very similarly He's very risk-averse, very focused on uh, counter-cyclical-slash-recession-resistant assets, mobile home parks, and cell storage. And he had just thought these things through to a larger degree than I had because he'd been this in the business for about uh, five years full-time uh, before me. And what ended up happening was as soon as I started to build a relationship with him, I reached out and said, hey, look, I want to be in your position as quickly as possible. And I want to build a business that's kind of similar to yours in terms of your passive investing strategies. And if you're interested, you know, I'd be an intern for you, $12 an hour. That'd be great, whatever. And this is the key. This is the key. It goes back to what you mentioned about the book. I'm smiling. (laughs) But he said, hey, you know, I think you're great, but I don't really have a lot of like menial tasks to do. All the tasks I do are like super high level tasks. I don't need your help with those tasks. And I was like, I met the right guy. (laughs) Like going back to the fact that I didn't want to build some massive business, which required all this overhead and all these employees. I wanted to build a business which was focused on passive investments. That's the whole key. It sounds like an infomercial, but it's true. If you're in a passive investment and the operator knows what they're doing, you're just supposed to get checks. And now it's not even checks. It's electronic deposits directly to the bank account. And he had set up a business like that. And so I can talk about the details of how that relationship evolved. But, you know, Jeremy is an influential person in this space and was very patient with me and was willing to schedule bi-monthly calls with me to kind of outline his investment thesis. And that started in 2010. And we have done these calls at least once a month for the last 10 years. And he watched me go from really struggling to raise my first half a million dollars to now we've raised more than 50 million dollars all from accredited investors, not one institution or family office. So we didn't go out to one company that gave us, you know, half of that. No, it's, it's hundreds of investors all over the country. And because of that, we've purchased at least a hundred million dollars worth of real estate directly. And I've also purchased, you know, another 50 million dollars of other assets that are not real estate.
0: <laughs> wow. That's, that's fantastic. What a, what a ride. And you know, so I think that the two things I want to talk about related to your relationship with Jeremy, um, you know and mentors in general, is that some, some people, I think, have limiting beliefs that, well, why does that want, why does that person want to help the next guy? You know So you know, if you can talk about that, because my experience is like people that are successful. If they find the right people that have drive and passion, they, they just genuinely want to help, you know, they don't want to waste their time. But if they find somebody that, you know, it just sparks a, you know, Hey, that was me five years ago or 10 years ago. I want to help this guy, you know, but some people think that you, you can't find that person. And so talk about what's in it for Jeremy, you know, being connected to you. Something that I've
1: found in this business is that look successful people are very busy people. That's by their nature. They're busy, right? So even Jeremy who said he didn't have a need for an intern for example, still his time is extremely valuable, right? Hundreds of dollars an hour if not more. And so if you're trying to get someone to give you the one resource that they can't make more of, you have to really inspire them. And that inspiration from my perspective comes from momentum that is self-created. Meaning that if you can paint the picture that you're going to go 150 miles an hour with or without their help, but with their help, perhaps you could go 160 and then later on the road, they could attribute a lot of their success to you. That's a very compelling thing. Now, I'm not saying that Jeremy did all that math. I think he just liked me intuitively. We saw the world similarly. He saw, okay, this person's going somewhere. This is worth my time. It's worth the investment to later uh, create something great down the road. And you know, that did create something fantastic for him down the road, right? We've done millions of dollars of deals together. And um, so, but that's how you do it. You, you show that if you have the opportunity to, let's say, work with a mentor and they say, you know, I'm kind of interested in the relationship between interest rates and cap rates. You hear them say that in offhanded com- conversation if you just go all in on trying to listen to every podcast on interest rates and cap rates and listen to economics on interest rates and cap rates and articles and so-and-so, and and the next time you talk, you go, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot too, and this is what I think now. I think that, I think most people probably think that there's an inverse relationship with interest rates and cap rates. But if you actually look into the data, there seemed to be a more of a correlation in the sense that the lower the interest rates are, the lower the cap rates are, but he has to, it's only over a 12-month period. In short terms, there can be these divulgence. It's like, oh my gosh, like, wow, you went from not knowing about this topic to being obsessive on this topic and with a high demand for excellence quickly. Those are all the makings of a successful person. And if you can even tie that into a personal story where you know you can even show what's on the table with your successful, not only for yourself, but for others as well. How can I not help you out if I'm in a position to do so?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I love that you said inspire them because I think that that's it. There's just like, this is going just like human nature, man. It's like you, you need to just connect with somebody and inspire them. You know, I agree with you on, and I don't, but yeah, I want to add something to it. Um, You know, if you're going to, if he talks about interest rates and cap rates, I think you still, you have to be authentic to yourself and you have to be you. So if, If that topic is not something that you're passionate about, you know, or that part of the industry, you know, it's, it's probably, he's probably going to see through it. Even if you do all the research, you know, Totally. so find something that, you know, is part of you that's authentic and then go all in on that, you know, and, and connect with somebody that really loves that.
1: Yes. Even before going into that type of relationship, I want to be very dialed in to who that person really is. And if I can see them and I working together for the next multiple decades to come, right? So people always talk about getting mentors and you can be mentored by people that don't know you directly. You can have an asymmetric relationship with your mentors, right? Think about like Robert Kiyosaki, for example. That's a book that I'm sure has come up on pretty much every single interview you've ever done. And yet Robert Kiyosaki likely doesn't know most of your guests. (laughs) So that's, that's one thing. But when I'm talking about the mentors and that are in your life, you want to have like one or two in your whole life that are your professional mentors. And so think about it with that kind of care when you go into those relationships, because the closer the proximity of what they're doing in terms of what you see yourself later down the road, the less likely it is that those situations are going to come up where they're asking you to do something that's way outside of your area of expertise or interest you can kind of be yourself more, more reasonably at that point. Makes yeah,
0: sense. I, yeah, That totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. So you built a business on raising capital and this is, this is funny. Um, so tell the goose egg story. Well, you know,
1: the goose egg story is really a story that's happened many times in my career. It just started to matter less and less, um, which is also really important lesson for entrepreneurs, particularly real estate entrepreneurs. But, you know, I, as I mentioned, I started building up a track record with my own personal capital, you know, investing passively in some pretty advanced operators uh, starting in 2011. By 2012, 13, 14, I started to grow some confidence and started bringing in uh, friends and family, additional, you know, my mom, my sisters, my aunt, et cetera. Um, Around 2013 or so, I decided to create my first fund of funds, like a formal syndication where I'm the owner of the fund. But don't be confused. Just because we use the term fund, it doesn't mean it's a multiple property opportunity, just the typical vernacular in the investment space. It's called a special purpose vehicle. There's a special purpose, and that special purpose is that it only invests in another deal, basically. And in this case, it's someone else's deal. And the reason I wanted to do this is that um, there's securities laws around how you can be compensated and such. And I didn't want to go partner with a new team. I wanted, to, I wanted to partner with a very savvy advanced team, but they had no real need for me. And they're in the middle of a $20 million raise. I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I can raise a half million. So they didn't want to make me a formal member of the GP. So what I did is I went to them and said, hey, instead of me trying to be a member of the GP to avoid these broker-dealer challenges, why don't we do this? I'll invest a minimum of half a million dollars in your deal, which is probably about 10 times what you're normally getting. And because of that, let me get a more favorable waterfall structure. So instead of an eight pref, I'll get a nine pref instead of a 70, 30 split. Why don't we do an 80, 20 split, something similar to that. And then at the SPV level, I'll take 10% of the deal. So the investors in my deal are getting the same economics as if they had gone direct and I can still Basically, get 33% of the GP, if you can make sense of those numbers, because I'm keeping the additional 10%. Does
0: that make sense? It's very smart. Very smart.
1: Okay. Appreciate it. Um, So I went ahead and did that. But the whole point was that this was only economically viable or interesting to the sponsor if I could raise a half million dollars, which to me was going to be no problem, right? Because what I have, I had a track record with my own personal portfolio. I had friends and family investing. I had a operator. I was not relying on my expertise. The fact that this would be my first fund was inconsequential because this group is buying a hundred millions of dollars of properties a year and has been doing so for five years. So it wasn't a Hunter Thompson show. It was all about this strategic partnership that I created. And you know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. One of my strengths is being able to communicate complicated ideas effectively. So put me in a room with people that have money to invest, it's on. And so I basically sent out a, a letter to several of like my friends and family, like high net worth individuals. And they could even invite their plus ones, plus twos. And I had a lunch and I got as many people to come to this lunch as possible. They had to be accredited investors. There's about room for 20 people at this lunch and 30 people showed up. All were accredited. All had a net worth of at least a million You're feeling good at that more. point. He, oh yeah, it's on. So, you know, it's standing room only. And I texted the person who was my friend at the time. It is now my wife, Chrissy, to basically kind of preemptively celebrate this is going to happen. Not only am I going to raise a half million, I'm going to raise a million and it's on. Like once you get to your first million, everybody knows you can compound on that. And then you've got a great career ahead. And I went into this room, gave a presentation that in all sincerity, I would give today. Like it was a very good presentation on a very good asset class. Keep in mind, we're talking about the mobile home park business in 2010 or 2011 or so where they're trading at 10 caps, meaning that if you bought them with no debt and did no value add whatsoever, you're getting a 10% return. I'm presenting in a room full of people that have most of their money in a CD or worse. So this is going to be a landslide. I give a presentation. I handed out a piece of paper to each attendee and said, write the number that you're interested in investing, fold it to keep it private and hand it back in to me. And I gave them some food, told them goodbye, thanked them for coming, went up to my room, unfolded the paper to count everything, and I had raised a grand total of $0. Oh, no. Nobody. Actually, no one even wrote anything, meaning that no one wrote, hey, I'll think about it. Hey, I'll call you later. I've got some questions. No, there was not a pen to paper that took place after that presentation. And I recognized, well, first of all, I was emotionally completely destroyed. The financial implications are one thing, but just like the sheer embarrassment of, oh, you moved out to LA, everything's going well, you're doing these investments and you're a real estate entrepreneur To Yeah, you raised capital. How much have you raised? And goose egg, well, you can't (laughs) raise less than that. So it couldn't be going worse.
0: I got to tell you, when I was reading that story, I I was expecting it to be a big number. And then all of a sudden you (laughs) ended with goose egg. I was like, oh no, you know, but you kept going on, man.
1: It was a really important learning lesson because, like I said, you know, I took about six months to recover from that emotionally. And I'm being serious. Like, I almost didn't move on with my career at that point because every vision of how I thought this was going to go, you know, I came from a great family. I'm from the United States. I have access to the internet. I was able to reach out to people in country clubs. Like, I had everything that you could possibly imagine for someone getting into the world of capital raising, and I fell flat. And so what did I do? What most people do when they fall flat on a capital raise, they think it's them. They think they failed. They think it's not for them. They think it can't be done. Or that they start making excuses about why other people could do it and not them. And basically, I recognized, not only do I want to chase around investors and try to convince them, I never even want to present in a room with only 30 people or even only 30 million again. And for the last ten years, I built an infrastructure to attract hundreds of thousands of people, capture thousands of emails, and nurture them through automated sequences, through internet marketing, et cetera, and marketing tactics generally that are very intentional. And now, you know, like I said, we've raised tens of millions of dollars from hundreds of investors. Um,
0: and what was the big lesson? Last year was, what was the again? big lesson learned?
1: Well, number one, I, I don't want to. Try to convince anyone to invest with me. And since writing the book, I've kind of thought about this even deeper. But I think that the movie Inception has a lot of really important, like true takeaways. One of them is that ideas that come from within, our own ideas, are so much more powerful than those who feel like they're planted in our heads, especially for us weirdos who at some point decided, The mainstream way of blank, aka insert the most important thing in the world, either money or religion or politics or education. Everybody listened to this probably has some very unique ideas on all those things. We recognize we had been lied to and we figured out the way for ourselves. But in the, in the route to figuring out that we had that super high buy-in moment. And so what's going on is that we had that super high buy-in moment about real estate. And what we're trying to do is then do exactly what all those people that lied to us about everything are. We're going, Hey, get in a room. Guess what? This is the truth. I'm smashing you over the head. Your financial analyst is an idiot. Like you're just doing the exact same thing. Everyone else is doing. What we're trying to do basically is we want to put uh, ourselves in a position so that our marketing allows people, number one, that are attracted to us that have already taken the red pill and are going through the matrix. And we want to get them in a position so they can uncover these truths for themselves as opposed to force it down their throats.
0: Yeah. And I can give you some I, examples of that, I mean, that's, like in
1: that's the key of all marketing.
0: And, you know, to summarize, like you had it in the book, you were like, look, I'm going to focus on people that are trying to find out about real estate investments and investing in real estate. And, and instead of trying to convince somebody that has never invested in real estate and has and hasn't made the personal decision to themselves that they're even interested in that. So, exactly. you, you started going after a a group of people that that you know were in search. Um, so, I thought that made a lot of sense. Um, and I you know I think there's still a ton of people out there that are accredited investors that have money. Um, that have interest in real estate, but they just haven't been introduced to the right people or the right know-how. And so I think that those people are still, you know, a good group to go after. Um, But the people that, you know, are leaving their money under their bed and, you know, are are just for 30 years have kept their money in a, you know, interest bearing account is probably a harder sell. 100%. So, It's a really important kind of
1: conversation because if you're trying to convince someone that they should take a percentage of their portfolio out of this thing that's probably generally been working kind of well, I mean, I mentioned that I was talking to only accredited investors. These people are people that have done generally quite well in life, especially financially. Now, it may be that they're not using all the tools that you and I would advocate that they use, but why would they risk it if they're not really, really bought in? So what you're trying to do is have like a pseudo-religious experience for these people in like a 30-minute presentation. And looking at it through that lens, of course, they didn't move forward with someone who's relatively young that hasn't had the type of success that they had had at that time. And, you know, it's just not going to work. But I don't, you know, ever have conversations like that anymore. You know, because of the things that I outline in the book, right? Attracting your dream clients. Uh, creating webinars and articles and touch points and interviews such as this that can be repurposed and reused over and over again without taking my one-on-one time. If I ever get to an opportunity where I talk to an investor, the beginning of the conversation sounds like this. Oh my gosh, are you the Hunter Thompson? Are you the guy that I've been <laughs> listening to for the last several hours? You're the guy who I, I've re- written, I've read your book, I've read your articles, I've seen you all over the internet? Well, that's amazing. It's not about, well, now you convince me to invest with you. No. If I talk to an investor, the thing they want to make sure is that I actually am who I say I am and that the wire instructions are what they say they are. And I know that sounds like an infomercial, but it's taken me 10 years to get to that point. And now, you know, we have things that on paper seem ridiculous where, um, a few months ago, someone sent me a wire for $620,000. We didn't even have a phone call. And they had sent me another wire for another $620,000 three months before, and we didn't have a phone call. So that's what can be created if you focus on the marketing side of the business. And it's a really important segue to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is that capital raising is a different skill set than operating real estate. Raising money is about the top of the funnel. Raising money is about attracting attention, nurturing that attention, and then turning that attention into $100,000 plus repeat investors. And that's a very different skill set from underwriting, asset managing, property visits, talking to brokers, which are things that, by the way, I do, but it's important to be known in this space. And so half my time is focused on real estate, half my time is focused on the side of things of marketing. And it's a really good mix when you have a partner who's only focused on operations, which is what we do when we have our partners and strategically partner with them.
0: That's huge. Hey, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I like, I really like how you structured, um, the economics such that your, you know, your end customer, the investor that's investing with you, with your company You're putting that money into another deal. Had that person gone direct, they're getting the same economics. How do you protect and nurture that relationship such that after, so I'm an investor, I invest with you. Now you put me in XYZ, you know, deal. And now I'm like, oh, next time I'm just going to go to, you know, XYZ. Even if the economics are the same, there's... You know, there's a piece that says, well, why, you know, deal with the middleman? Well, it's a really great question and I'll, I'll give you some tactical
1: answers, but I want to give you a framework to view this because it's much more powerful than the tactics as always, by the way, you know, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, a lot of private equity companies, they don't own and operate real estate. They act in a large capacity, just like the structure that I just outlined. But you know what the difference is? The marketing. So if I'm investing with, I mean, we have co-invested alongside of multi-billion dollar real estate companies that are doing exactly what we're doing. It's just with more zeros, meaning that they recognize the opportunity as well. They have some other partner that has great deal flow in Texas, for example. They don't have the deals in Texas. Well, they split with an equity partner. They split with an operations partner and we have a great partnership. So this is happening all the time. So number one, the economics aren't necessarily less favorable. But number two, and this is also really powerful, is we start to feel like we are in this echo chamber and that everyone is like us and no one is like us is the reality. Remember that presentation I gave where everyone had their money in the CDE, the CDEs and such? That's the reality of the 12 million accredited investors in the United States right now. They are overwhelmingly not nearly invested in real estate as they should be because they don't even know about these types of deals, nor do they want to. They would much rather defer to your expertise, defer to your strategic partners, defer to you flying around the country looking at these properties. I mean, do you think my investors want to go and do a mobile home park property visit all across the Midwest? No, absolutely not. but I've done a couple. And so they would much rather not. And even if the economics weren't as comparable— then they would certainly want to defer to my expertise. Are there going to be investors that as you work your way up in terms of scalability and as you get further and further away from your friends and family that are going to be inclined to do such a thing? Yes, there's tactical ways you can work around it. And by the time you grow to that level, by the way, you'll have overcome those things in different ways. So as an example, um, we no longer do a lot of those types of deals. And I am a registered representative. I have a series 22. I can actually tell people, go invest with them. The them in this scenario can pay us a placement fee, a percentage of the GP. They can pay us whatever they want because we're licensed to do so, though that's not the exact correct terminology. We have the registration with the SEC to do so. Um, I am also a sponsor for deals where I am not just a capital partner, but truthfully involved in the operations side of the business. And the reason for that is that these are tools. And I want to make money the same way that everyone listening to this wants to make money. Every way I can. You know what I mean? As long as the what's favorable for the investors over the long term, and I have found the fund of funds model is a great model, the placement agent model is a great model, and the direct sponsor model is also a great model. So I want to do all of them.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Um, I don't know if we haven't talked about this before, and and so I don't know what your answer is going to be. But you did quote Warren Buffett uh, quote. You know, buy when blood is in the streets. Um, you know, you quoted that in the book. And when I think about like the last year, right? Last year COVID hit, you know, multifamily, you know, held up pretty strong, but everybody was pointing to hospitality and office and retail as you know, like tanking, right? Well, I'm in the midst of trying to, you know, book my family vacation and I'm telling you, like resorts are at capacity. They are, you know, nightly rates are through the roof right now. So hospitality has come back. Um, Travel is back. And so my question is, did you or anybody that you know, invest at when blood was in the streets in hospitality? and get in at really good valuations? Really
1: great I'm question. just curious. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, my network mostly consists of people that have a very similar perspective on investing than I do. And man, there's so many takeaways for this. So first of all, you know, our investment thesis was that our asset classes, mobile home parks, self-storage, um, no, not office, mobile home parks, self-storage, multifamily apartments in particular, would ha- hold up well during recessions and also ATMs. We ended up uh, doing quite a bit of ATM capital as well. Um, We paused and I sent out an email to our investor base saying, you know, we could be right on the brink of a great opportunity. I've been through this once before with 2008, and this requires a lot of strength and courage, but it could be the kind of thing that we could be in a great position. But guess what happened? That opportunity did not come. The distress did not exist. In fact, there was a, a real fall off of volume of transactions because collections were high as well as unemployment. And so buyers and sellers could not meet in the middle to a large degree because no one could make sense of it, which is fine. But where you did have the distress, this is so true of now and in 2008, it isn't the way most people think it's going to be. It's not the way the stock market works. For example, um, I made a a significant investment in the stock market in the peak of hysteria, COVID, March 2020, 30% reduction. I put in what I would typically put in a real estate deal into the S&P 500, which is something I hadn't done in 10 years. Um, but that's not how it happens in real estate. So, for example, in retail, which I had been talking about for years because I felt like there was a disequilibrium between the mainstream media's take on the retail apocalypse and the reality of most grocer-anchored retail centers in the United States with tenants like Dollar General, mixed martial arts studios, pizza places. This is unrelated to the Amazon threat. And I was kind of talking about that publicly but not necessarily making investments because we just didn't find the right deal. Part of that was luck, but we're very, you know, we're very cautious about where we invest, especially in a a space with those question marks. However, when the real retail apocalypse happens and the government says, you can't go into retail stores, then it's on. Then it's really distress. But what happened? Could you just go out and buy a retail center at a 50% discount? No, not unless you're going to buy it in cash. You know what I mean? So like, that's the reality of the market when it comes to real estate, you don't have to be the first at all. This moves like a barge. That's the whole point. So to answer your question about hospitality, I don't want to be in sectors that experience those types of boom, bust cycles. The whole point of our thesis is to avoid that. So anytime someone goes, oh my gosh, there's a great opportunity in blank. If they're right, I don't want to participate. Because why do I want to expose myself to those types of risks of asset prices when if I can achieve a mid-teen mid type of IRR in an asset class that's historically held up exceptionally well during those type of corrections, why in pursuit of a high-teen IRR will I drastically increase the likelihood of foreclosure? And that is a back-of-the-nap conversion of the name of my company. You know, the name of my firm, our private equity company, is ASYM. It's short for Asymmetric as an asymmetric returns. And without going into a whole Excel model, if I can predictably produce something in the 12 to 15 range, if you put that in a financial calculator, you're talking about significant wealth creation in seven, 10, and not to mention 60 years. So from my perspective, it's not worth pursuing those extra 3% per year when every decade you get hammered.
0: Right. So from your perspective, it's, it's, a, it's just a focus that you guys don't, you won't look at. You won't go outside your focus um, because why would you for the, the small incremental um, benefit to it? Correct. Now, you know, it, if there was true blood in the streets, it could be more than, you know, two or three, um, you know, interest basis points per year. That's true. That's 100% true. Let me add one
1: thing though, because um, it's just that those asset classes are less susceptible. So for example, in 2008, valuations in mobile home parks were very much hit, but we're not super concerned with valuations if we have appropriate debt financing in particular. So if we have a valuation, which goes from a six cap to a 10 cap, which is kind of what happened, but we're chugging along at 90% occupied, we're just going to keep chugging along unless we're forced to refinance or sell at that time for whatever reason, which can happen only with, you know, that kind of debt. But the other thing though, is that we're not completely blinders on when it comes to our investment thesis. It's just that that's the thesis and the percentages are our tweet. So recently we have found an opportunity in the ATM business, which is just like, I am finding it very hard to compete with this type of opportunity And so the ATM percentage of my personal portfolio, as well as the opportunities we've made available recently, is overweighted to ATMs. I think in two years, that ATM play will probably be gone because there's no way it's going to continue the way it is. And, you know, we're going to take advantage of
0: it. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Well, that's the value of, you know, going back to the question before in terms of like, why would, you know, hey, there's risk that, that an investor would go around you. But if you're continually out spending your time and investing in opportunities and introducing new opportunities that they see valuable, they know if they go around then they've just burned that relationship and they're going to miss those op- other opportunities. Exactly. A hundred percent. And we, it's something that we
1: just really haven't had much of a challenge with because of the favorable economics, because of the, the great terms, but also um, we have bit of expertise in the business in terms of that due diligence process. You know, we take it very, very seriously. And because of our unique positioning in the space, we're well positioned to deliver that, right? Because most investment firms don't really have a spectrum of what's out there in the business. They're only focused on what their niche is. And we're well positioned to say in the industry as a whole, this is what's out there. This is what's favorable. And I'm not biased right i'm only biased based on my own thesis which is very different than most operators so if i say there's an opportunity in the atm business it's because i mean it
0: yeah abs- absolutely what about geography what about geography are you focused in on just certain markets or you can you can move to to different markets as well because you know texas is a hot hot market right now and but 3 years from now maybe it's not and some some other market is hot and you have the flexibility to pick a partner in Texas now, and then three years from now, pick a partner in whatever other geography is is the next up and coming area. That's right, Darren. That's the whole point, right? We want to be able to be nimble and be sponsor
1: and investment thesis and geographic location agnostic because we don't want to have our internal biases impact our investments. Yeah, I like that. We recognize that human beings our, you know, by our very nature, we look for confirmation bias. We look for, I knew I was right the whole time. And oh yeah, it'll work in Florida because I live in Florida. It just happens to be that Florida is the best market. That's what the nature of human beings is. So, you know, we don't invest in California. I live in California and that alone should tell you a little bit about, you know, our strategy. (laughs) Right.
0: Right. The other thing is, is that, you know, I've heard this over and over from, from, you know, syndicators and I would believe it falls you know, true for, for a company like yourself as well, is that, look, I invest money with you and you give me a very, very attractive return. And then somebody tries to convince me to go elsewhere. I'm probably like, why would I do that? You know, like this, this guy did what he said he was going to do. I trust him. And now I'm going to, you know, look at his, his next deals you know? Um, so there's, there becomes a, a, a loyalty and a referral uh, network that happens from other people that have positive success with you.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, referrals have been a huge part of our business and, you know, we've, we've experienced tremendous growth because of that low risk, you know, upfront, putting ourselves in a position to deliver, et cetera. And then, of course, we've had assets and we've done quite a bit of deals. So we've had deals that have underperformed and, you know, have underperformed on cash flow, but then are sold at a really favorable valuation and everything in between. And it's really how you manage those those more challenging deals where you actually learn a little bit about yourself. And um, if anyone's going through something like that, you know, it's, it's the mark of someone who's starting to get some experience in this industry, you know, so um, just keep it up.
0: Hey, um, so your book is focused on raising capital your your business is focused on raising capital for a lot of people that's the scariest part of syndication like oh man i got to go ask people for money and you know so you talk about the prize so talk about that cuz i think that's so important it's 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 mindset you know how how you view your mindset with regards to raising capital for a deal. So talk about that.
1: Well, I think that first of all, if you have the opportunity to get on a a call with an investor, for example, that a lot of their decisions are going to be made within the first five to 30 seconds, or at least many of the decisions that they'll make within that time period will likely dictate how the rest of the call goes. And that can, if that's an investor call, that can mean the difference between a hundred thousand dollars being vested or it not being invested. And In fact, it can be mean more far more than that, because, like we were saying previously, if you have the opportunity for someone to invest with you, it could be the case that they'll reinvest with you over and over again and potentially refer their friends. So, in the book, I talk about kind of the first five and 30 seconds being really important moments to number one, scrub the neediness from your voice and your tone immediately, you know, prior to even the call starting. But um, more importantly, I want to recognize before I get on a call with them that there are trillions of dollars in the world, invested in negative interest rate bearing bonds. like It is not just me and bigger pockets and Darren. right? We have a macroeconomic situation where the United States real estate is one of the most favorable investment vehicles in the world and in in the history of the world as well for all the reasons that we can get into. But you have access to these deals. You have access to what they want. And so to recognize your deals are going to get funded. And even if you're needy now, you've got to wipe it off your personality because that's the number one thing that can kill deals. But when I get in a call with someone very quickly, you know, especially when I was just getting started, you know, I want to make it clear. I'm going to set the pace of the call. I'm going to tell you when the call starts, when the call ends. And I'm also going to give you an agenda. And by the way, it's not something where I'm just trying to be super aggressive. I'm just trying to make them know a couple things. Number one, I've done this a bunch. Number two, I have other investor calls that I have to get to. And number 3 you're not going to be droning on and on for an endless pitch. Those are all things that most investors want to know. And so I'm just making it much easier for them to do that. So as an example, when I get in a call with someone, it sounds a little bit like this. Hey, this is Hunter with ASIM. How are you? Good. Hey, good. Hey, listen, I've got us blocked from 12 to 1230 today. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background. I can tell you a bit about my story Then I'm happy to answer any calls you have, but I do have to run an a call at 1230. Sound good? Good. Okay, great. So tell me a little about your background. So there's so much communicated in that short little time. I mean, if you haven't started doing that, start immediately. It'll drastically increase your close ratio and make your calls go much easier. But one of the things that's really important, of course, establishing the time block is one. Number two, establishing the agenda. Number three, asking them to just describe their background in the industry or their interest in real estate generally so that you can get a framework for how to communicate during the rest of the call. Because if I get on a call with someone who is contemplating making their first investment in a syndication, my response is going to be very different than if someone has made 20 investments in syndications with five different operators and they're thinking whether or not I should invest in my deal or some of my competitors' deals. Should I be talking about debt service coverage ratio? Should I be talking about market dynamics? Should I be talking about the difference between mobile home parks and self-storage and whatever they're investing in? Probably a little bit, but in the reality is as much as the tactics, we feel like the tactics and the specifics are our deals or what sells the deals. Anybody that's experienced in this industry knows it's all about the relationship. And so setting that call off on the right foot is far more important than the population growth of your market, for example.
0: Yeah. <laughs> were, what great advice. Anybody that's having investor calls, that's great, great, great advice to structure a call quickly upfront. Um, you know, the other thing that I would, I would say is you're presenting an opportunity. You're not asking them for money. You know, like it, it's a mindset thing where some people are so afraid of like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to get the money? You know, look, Hunter talked about it. There's, There's trillions of dollars that are at negative interest rates. Like this is an opportunity for them to make 10 times what they're making now. You know, and if they pass on the opportunity, so be it. You move on to the next person, you know, but there's plenty of money out there to, you know, that wants to find homes for it. So, um, you know, and that that goes to Hunter's advice in terms of getting the neediness out of your voice. You know, if you feel like you need, you know, $2 million to close your deal, it's going to be heard you know, versus, hey, I'm presenting this opportunity. I I'm, I'm extremely excited about it. You'd love to have you on board, but, you know, if, if it doesn't work, then we'll catch you on the next one. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the guy's like, oh, he didn't pressure me. He's going to do the deal with, with or without me. Do I want to end? You know, um, it's, it's a little different. So, hey, uh, our time is starting to come near the end. Um, what do you do for fun outside of work?
1: Man, not a lot, but I do, uh, I like to lift. Come on, there's got, there's got to be something. Yeah, yeah, I I actually, so right when COVID happened in California, it's been particularly pronounced where, you know, the lockdowns have been long-standing. I think today as of the recording of this is June 15th is the first time they were allowed, at least from the government standing, to not wear a mask in private businesses. Um, So when, working out is really important to me. So when the gyms closed, my wife and I moved to the suburbs very quickly and moved to Sherman Oaks and got a place that the previous owner had built like a literal home, like my dream gym. Like if I had a net worth with three more zeros in it than the one I have today, my gym would be exactly the same gym. That's like my dream kind of situation. And um, so that's been incredible. And um, I really do like lifting and kind of running. I'll do like a quick claim to fame. By the way, this is really important from a marketing standpoint, but also from an athletic standpoint, Um, you should be like to create a niche that's so small that only you're in it because all of a sudden you have no competitors and if someone's interested in the topic, they have to go to you. That's what I've tried to do regarding raising capital, obviously, but the same thing is true with athletics. So my kind of claim to fame at least is that I'm probably one of not a lot of people that at least most people would know that has both a 310 marathon and a 415 pound deadlift. So- no, no, no one has those two things, but not a lot of people focus on those two things. Um, So I did run one marathon. I ran the LA marathon last year. And so that's an average pace of like 715s per mile. And then in the same year, I had a, a 415 deadlift. So there you go. There's your kind of like little hack. And there's a huge, obviously, obvious crossover between athletics and, and entrepreneurship.
0: Hey, anybody that runs a marathon, it, it, no matter what speed it tells you that you're dedicated that you're you know that you you can persevere that you're determined um because i i have not done one <laughs> but people that i know that have done one they're all people that i admire uh for you know their determination to to make it happen so and they usually carry forward that into other parts of their life um so If somebody was to uh, reach out to you, what's the best way for people to get to know you?
1: So you can go to raisingcapitalforrealestate.com and you can actually pick up this book. Like I mentioned through the conversation, this is like my life's work and it's a free plus shipping offer. So I'll actually pay for the book. The books exist. I already bought them. All you got to do is pay for the shipping. So it's like $7.99 to ship anywhere in the United States. And there's a ton of great goodies on there. There is uh, several interviews, one of which- What was the website again? Yeah, it's raisingcapitalforrealestate.com.
0: If you're looking at the YouTube, you can you can see uh, the book, he just put, showed it up there, but I bought it on Amazon for, I don't know what it was, 20 something bucks or something like that. Um, I got a ton of value from it. I'm excited that he's offering it up here for seven ninety nine dollars to, to the listeners. So I would recommend anybody that's looking to raise capital, um, for their, for their deals, um, in real estate, he, it's, it, it's an awesome resource, awesome resource. So, um, raising capital for realestate.com. Um, what's the next big stretch goal for you, my friend?
1: Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? So when I wrote the book at the time, I had only raised about, I mean, not that this is a small number, but I'd raised about $30 million and then. You know, I think we raised about $15 million over the last six months. And we were very oh, slow wow. to do deals in, in 2020. So uh, I've raised now $50 million. And in the book, I tell a story about someone who had raised $100 million. And at the time, it was like this insurmountable figure that I couldn't really comprehend even. And um now it's very clear that that's very much on the table. And so, you know, I think we'll probably raise somewhere around another $30 million over the next um. Six or seven months you know in twenty twenty one and that's not because we're pushing the needle, very much the opposite of that we've built up quite a bit of capacity, and now it's just a matter of finding strategic partners and and more more specifically touching the strategic partners that we've created over the years and just instead of taking down thirty percent of their purchases, taking down a hundred percent of their purchases so
0: that's that's, a nice that's awesome um hey uh you gave the book website is there a website for? For them to reach you as a, as a company as well? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: ASYM Capital is the private equity group and that's asymcapital.com. And we likely have an opportunity available depending on when you send this out. I'm very bullish on the ATM space, the mobile home park business, self-storage and senior living as well. So make sure to check out that, if especially if you're an accredited investor.
0: Fantastic. Hunter, I really appreciate you coming on. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, Reach out to Hunter, get his book. And um, until next time, signing off. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at DarrenBatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.